sometimes those intros are like two minutes and then this one's like 25 seconds like hurry get off the stage uh, hurry up so <laughs> good morning everybody glad you guys are here uh i'll tell you my heart source whenever i see each of you come in the morning uh, i am so excited for uh, you to be here um we were talking last week about uh how god brings together uh, all sorts of nations and people uh, in jesus christ and only through jesus christ and and we get to demonstrate that each week and so I know I am so filled with joy when I see all of your beautiful faces. So thanks for making my Sunday way better. And, and I, I pray that uh, God has been meeting with you, that your heart will be open to what he has to say. A few weeks ago, I said, like, all I am is like the, the pitcher in the home run derby. I'm just trying to deliver God's word. And it's about to come out to you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit's been working in you and that you would receive God's word this morning. We've been uh, working through the book of Ephesians, and after today, we're going to be halfway through the book. And so um, we're going to pick up there today uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, where we're going to see Paul expand on the reality of our strategic position in Christ. That's one thing we're looking for, our strategic position in Christ today. And the other thing we're going to see is that uh, we have a together position in Christ. So our strategic position and our together position are the things we're going to be looking for in uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 13 that we're going to cover. So let's uh, jump into Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through, uh, 1 through 13 right now. If you have your Bible, you can follow along there or your digital Bible, that's okay. And uh, the verses will probably be on the screen as well, as long as the uh, Lord bless our tech, please like that. Okay, so let's see. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Bamo, God's blessing already. So for this reason, Paul, that's how it starts out. For this reason, Paul, and uh, right away I was like, okay, what's the reason? Because I forgot last week's sermon, right? So if that's like the antecedent it was last week, I don't remember it. And so I looked last week, but that's not the reason. So he doesn't give the reason last week. And then so I started to read through the whole passage of today, and there's not the reason listed. The, the reason doesn't actually come till verse 14. Leave that up there. So yeah, the reason doesn't come till verse 14, which isn't until our next week's sermon. And so you're going to actually have to come back if you want to know why Paul says for this reason. But what happens? He says, for this reason, Paul, the prisoner, and the moment he mentions prisoner, he gets sidetracked. I don't know if you're like a, maybe he's not that young. So it's pretty, pretty much like an old people thing. Like you're saying something and then you get triggered on a word and you're like, oh, let's go down this rabbit hole. And you totally forgot what you're talking about. Well, Paul is the sort of master of like getting sidetracked on things. So he'll start with one thing and then it'll meander over here. And then he'll kind of come back to it. And that's what he does here. So uh, that's true in like real life and writing and in talking. So uh, tune in next week if you're wanting to know what the, the reason Paul starts chapter three about. But then, here's where he gets sidetracked. He says, the, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given uh, to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. So, mentioning uh, being a prisoner gets him all sidetracked. So, during uh, Paul's Roman imprisonment, he was under house arrest, which meant uh, his friends could come and visit him. He could write letters. He could talk to people back and forth. Uh, but they had to pay for him. So it's, a, you know, it's like a working from home. Your company lets you. But it's your air conditioner, your electricity, your food, right? And so that's sort of he was a house arrest where he would have 24-7 a Roman guard with him, but he was allowed to stay inside of his house just to make sure that he didn't escape uh, before his trial before Caesar. Yet even as he was imprisoned, Paul did not consider himself a prisoner of the Romans. Look what he says. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he knew that Jesus is the Lord of his life, not the Roman government. So if he was a prisoner, he was in fact Jesus's prisoner. 
And Paul had a, a beautiful way of doing this, you know, uh, where he would say, like, it's not my situation that defines me, it's Jesus that defines me. And I wonder if there's a truth uh, for us in this kind of idea. Maybe you, you did the right thing and, and it still doesn't work out. But perhaps you ended up exactly in the actual Jesus place that he wanted you to be. Because if you're in Christ, wherever you are, is Jesus's. So maybe you're parenting a difficult child. Then you're Jesus's parent. You're a parent of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you lost your job. Well, now you have some Jesus free time. Maybe you, got a, maybe you got a promotion at work. Well, man, so I could promote Jesus. Where, where you pull Jesus like every phrase that you're doing. Maybe you have a difficult uh, uh, time at school. Well, you're, you're a student of Christ. Yes, you go to school, but, but Christ is the center and the central of all things. And that's how Paul sort of viewed all things. Whether God causes these things or, or not is not relevant, but but in every situation, Paul says, hmm, if I find myself a prisoner, I'm going to be a prisoner for Jesus. If I find myself a student, I'm going to be a student for Jesus. If I find myself a, a married person, I'm going to be a married person for Jesus. And Paul does this in all of his things because Jesus is central and in charge of all things in Paul's life. Then he says, uh, uh, you've heard about the administration of God's grace. That's a weird word, administration, to throw in here. Depending on what translation you use, that, that word cha changes a bunch because the word actually means like an implemented strategy. So, so he says, God, God has an implemented strategy. God's doing something, and he allowed me to be part of that implemented strategy. So uh, Paul says, the, uh, my work to you, my work in sharing the gospel, is an implemented strategy of sharing God's goodness. Now, I think this is true with each of us. As you encounter opportunities to share Jesus with people, because it's not your religion, it's not your truth, it's not yours to convince, it's God's message to people. And wherever you are, you are in a strategic opportunity. You are in that place that nobody else is. You'll have opportunities this week that I won't have, that your neighbor right or left won't have, that your closest friend won't have, you'll have opportunities to be placed in a strategic place for the kingdom of God if you're willing. Because you can be in prison and just be a prisoner. Or you can be in prison and you can be in prison for the Lord. You, you could be a parent and just be a parent. Or you could be a parent for Christ. You could be a student or you could be a student for Christ. If you're willing, you can be part of God's strategic plan of reaching the world. The mystery, the message that we see here, is that anyone can come and be united as one in Christ and have eternal salvation. He reminds them of this next. He says, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was, it wasn't made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They're members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So God used Paul to declare specifically how Jews and Gentiles would be joined together in the body of Christ. We were talking about that last week. Now in the Old Testament, the salvation of the Gentiles 
in the Messiah, it's prophesied. So God said, like, even the Gentiles will come back to God, but he doesn't tell them how. The coming together of the Jew and the Gentile as the church, it wasn't imagined at all. They didn't realize that God would create a, a new people, Jew and Gentile together, where, where ethnic boundaries fell away and those, those divisions dropped out because all would become one in Christ. This could only happen through the gospel where all men have an equal standing in Jesus. See that last sentence? Where we can all become heirs, members together, one body, sharers in the promise of Jesus. I mean, do you hear the unity in that? Do you hear the together in that? Remember, we were looking for strategic and together. Here's our together position. We are sharers in something. We are uh, receivers of something. What was your friend group in high school? If you're in high school now, what, what's your friend group? What are they known as? Every friend group is known as something, right? What was your friend group in high school? And think back about it. What was your group? Mine was the nerd herd. It was literally called the nerd herd. People called our group that, like verbally, out loud. And then we owned it, and we, uh, we called ourselves the nerd herd as well. Now, I was the least worthy of that actual spoken title. Um, other friends are all like Berkeley and MIT and these other, the other places. And, the, you know, I got to UCI. Come on now. That's the lowest rung of the nerd herd, right? <laughs> I was like, a, you know, I wasn't Stanford. I was at UCI. But, but good enough to they, they let me be in the nerd herd. And uh, my, wife, uh, my wife and I are the same grade, same school. Uh, hers was the library crew. Uh, but more specifically, the fobs that were in the library crew. Because my wife had only been here a couple of years. And so the, if you said, like, oh, the library crew, ah, oh, because there were, like, bros who hang out there and, like, look at, like, uh, car magazines. It wasn't them. It was, like, these, like, just fob Koreans that only spoke Korean together. And so, yeah, she was the fob crew. And so, uh, I don't know, uh, why, why do we join these kind of groups? Why are we all associated? Why, why is our group known for something? They're known for a commonality, right? We either have a shared interest or there's something that we have in common uh, that, that draws us together as a group. So I know maybe yours is like, I don't know, nowadays, what would you like, BTS people? I don't even know. So old guy here. Uh, baseball bros or like, you know, the ASB people were like one group, you know. FFA, Future Farmers, they were definitely a group, right? They were definitely something. I don't know, something. Those theater geeks, you saw them or... Or jocks, you know, they hung out together. I don't know. Uh, depending on how old you were, mods. If, if you're not that old, they weren't mods. They were, they were goths. And if you're not that old, they're emo. You know, same thing. It's just the same black mascara, just through different, you know, decades. That's all. Um, whatever, right? We all have a, an inclination and a desire to belong to something. And the beauty of this passage is says that we are together in something brand new. You can still be a fob or a nerd or a geek or a jock, but, but you have a new place of belonging when you come to Christ. You get to belong to, be members of, sharers in, together position in Jesus. And that, that's the best group to be part of. I mean, even better than the nerd herd. <laughs> and what a cool privilege. Paul continues, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So Paul says he's a servant. In Greek, servant means a table waiter who's uh, at the beck and call of those people who've come uh, to be waited upon. 
Now, this isn't his claim to apostleship, which he does claim in other places. In this point, he says, I am a servant of this gospel, servant of the gospel. It's servitude that he claims. And the same claim is available to each of us as well if we want to take it. If we're willing to take his same attitude in our our interactions, then we too can say, I want to be a servant of the gospel if we're willing. And if we do that, that changes things. Servant of the gospel is available title for all of you. Apostle is not. So Paul got to be apostle, but we don't get to. But we all can be servants of the gospel. At work, what would that look like? What would it look like? Teenage man talking about high school. What would it look like if puberty hit late? What would it look like at your work if you were a servant of the gospel? I don't know. Like... It's your calling, not mine. Mine's pretty easy, right? What does it look like if I'm a servant of the gospel as a pastor? <laughs> like fill in the blank everything you do. I don't know what yours looks like, but, but it's your calling. You figure it out. You tell me. I'll come back next week and say, Pastor Sam, I know exactly what it means to be a servant of the gospel at uh, you know, a logistics company where you do the books. I, I don't know. You tell me. What does it look like uh, if it was with my wife? How does that change our interaction? If I decide to be a servant of the gospel in relation to my wife, how do I approach her differently if I view myself as a servant of the gospel in relation to her? So if that once every three years we had our one, once in three years fight, maybe if I'm a servant of the gospel, gospel being God's unconditional lean and love towards us, if I'm a servant of the gospel towards my wife, then maybe I offer her more grace in our interaction. Maybe, maybe I say, oh, God, how, how are you wanting to use this time to shape her? How are you wanting to use me to be a blessing to her? God, I'm a servant of your gospel. The gospel says that, that you love her unconditionally, that you want her blessed and built up. How can I be a servant of that? How can I be a waiter of that at, at her need, not my own? Man, servant of the gospel changes how I interact with my wife, changes how I fight with her, changes whether she has to say it eight times, take out the trash. She doesn't. I hate the trash being dirty, and I can take it out fast. Didn't even tell me. I'll tell them, my family. I'm the clean one. I'm like, clean up, clean up. Throw your trash away. But but how does it change if I'm going to be a servant of the gospel to my own family? How would it change if you were serving a gospel among your friends at school? If it it wasn't about your maybe own insecurities, but it was maybe saying, God, I want to serve my friends with the gospel. I want to show them unconditional love, and I want to care for them. Show me how to how to be a servant of the gospel to my friends, how would, how would that look on social media? How does this interaction, or, or how does this idea change your interactions with people? How would it change how I interact with my children? Because parents, we're, we're pretty proud. We think we know the way. We're the boss. If I'm a servant of the gospel to my children, what, is that, what does that change? What does that change in me? Maybe I'm not lording it over them. Maybe I'm actually under them, serving them. And, and not to create like sort of a soft generation or something, but because I, I don't think Paul's soft. He, he gets martyred, so he's fine. <laughs> Jesus is not soft. He gets crucified. Right? None of these folks who are following Jesus and doing this kind of thing, all of the apostles, they get killed almost all violently. So I don't think they're soft. That, there's no worry of that parent. They don't become ungodly by by demonstrating this. They actually become more godly. 
But, ki- but kids, what would it be like if you decided that you wanted to be a servant of the gospel to your parents? How does that help you navigate maybe some of your teen emotions? How does it take the edge off how what tone you use with your parents? How, if, if you want to serve your parents, maybe they come in their bad day. Maybe they haven't been present all the time. Maybe whatever. They're overly controlling. You know, whatever. <laughs> Kids, if you wanted to be servant of the gospel to your parents, how would that work? And if you think that, you, that, that your voice is unimportant, I will guarantee, I'll promise you, in my own life, I've been affected probably by, uh, majorly by two or three adults who've really uh, affected my outlook. But I've, my, my outlook has been affected by children far much more, where, where a student of mine will say something, and it will change me. It will hit me to the core multiple times. When I go on missions, I meet, meet, my, I meet nice missionaries, but do you know what changes me? This 12-year-old kid who meets Jesus wants to follow him, and there's no Christians around him, and his parents aren't Christians. And that, that changes me. So your ministry to your parents as a servant of the gospel is powerful, kids. It isn't just for adults down, but it's for you, children up. God calls each of us to be a servant of the gospel. And the nice part is you don't have to be all that to do it. You don't have to have made it. You don't have to have arrived as a Christian to be like this servant of the gospel. See what Paul says next. He says, although I am the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace that was given to me, this opportunity was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Now, when Paul writes this, he's not Paul. I mean, he is Paul, but he's not Paul, right? When we hear Apostle Paul, he's like this thing. At this point, he hasn't written the books of the Bible. There's no Bible, not New Testament yet. Paul isn't this Christian giant, and he's not a martyr yet. He hadn't died. He's still alive writing. He's a former Pharisee and a former Jesus persecutor who condoned the murder of Christians and gave his approval for it. Kill them. Find them and kill them. Literally watch them get their head beat in with stones. That's who's writing. Not the Paul. It's a murderer doing his best to walk in his new life and his new calling. Unless you've been killing people lately, you're in a better place than the Apostle Paul. I don't think anyone's killing anyone lately, and don't admit it if you were. Not now. Go to confession at Catholic Church. <laughs> I guess yeah, you can talk to someone about that, but I don't think that, that's our reality. So, so here he's doing all this stuff, and he hasn't arrived yet. He's not He's just a guy trying to figure it out. Paul marveled at the grace that was given to him to preach the gospel. He said, I can't do it. I don't deserve it. And that's what we say, right? I can't do it. I don't deserve it. I don't know enough. I used to be bad. I have all these things. I'm not. All, all inside, it's still confused and messed up. And that's what grace means. God says, I'm going to call you out of my grace and my goodness. Now, the word translated to preach to the Gentiles means to announce the good news. Paul's preaching was simply the announcement of the good news of what God had done in Jesus. We hear preach, and I don't want to do that one. Preach, Satan's taken that word, and preach has become a bad word, right? If someone's preaching at you, or I don't want to be preaching at people. My dad used to, my dad wasn't a believer, and uh, he used to say, like, oh, 
how's the preaching going, son? You know, you a preacher man? You got rich yet? I was like, eh, not yet, but that's not part of the plan either, Dad. But and they would use it as this negative. But preaching isn't negative. Preach simply means to announce good news. Preaching isn't me on Sunday. Preaching is available for all of us, and it's good if it means to announce good news. Then it's for all of us to announce. And the announcement is what? Check out a verse. What's he announcing? What's he preaching? He's preaching the boundless riches of Christ. If you tried to map the edges or reach its limit or travel to the border, you will find yourself forever searching because there is no limit, there is no edge to the riches of Christ. Having been entrusted with such riches, Paul's passion was to then make this gospel known to people. He says, man, God loves someone like me. God brings a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, together with Gentiles. God creates a new people. God, God makes me an heir a family? How to tell people about this? I gotta tell them like this is available. They don't have to have it, but, but I gotta let them know that it's available. It was Paul's passion, and it ought to be ours as well. Because these aren't only facts to know, but it's a life to live. Strategically united in Christ together so that we can share the good news. See it here in the next passage. His intent. This is God's intent. His intent was that now, through the church, the together church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. One purpose of God's great plan was to reveal his, his manifold wisdom. Like, I don't even use that word. Manifold means multifaceted. It, it has the idea of something that's intricate and complex and beautiful. Sort of like, a, like if you saw a diamond. Like if you look at a diamond, like it just sparkles different no matter how you turn it. And you'll never see the kind of the same view. It depends on light and it depends on what's around. And that, that's what a manifold would be. It's complicated and it's beautiful and it's intricate. And, and Paul says the church reveals the, that multifaceted wisdom of God. But who does the church reveal it to you? Look here really carefully. To whom is this revealed? To Satan, demons, and the angels, and the heavenly realm. Yeah, really? Yeah, really. God doesn't use angels to reveal his wisdom to us. Rather, he uses us to reveal his wisdom to the angels, to angelic beings, both faithful and fallen. So this reminds us that we're called for something far greater than our own individual salvation or even our own sanctification. We're called to be the means by which God teaches the universe a lesson and a beautiful lesson. I mean, that's just like a mind blower. That there's more going on than just humanity or our universe even. That angelic beings are interested and instructed by the lives of Christians? Uh, you may think that your life is small and in insignificant, but the angels know better. They know it's not. You may doubt your high standing. You may take for granted your status in heavenly places, but the angels see that spiritual reality with eyes wide open. 
the mystery of the unified body of Christ shines brightly and teaches clearly. Paul continues in this, In him, Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The word freedom here is actually freedom of speech. We all have the same freedom to express ourselves to God without fear and without shame. Through Jesus, we all have equal access and equal footing to talk to God. Like pastors don't have special privilege. We don't, uh, missionaries don't get to go to the front of the prayer line. It's like if I call up God, he's like, hold on. You know, hold on, Jamie. Can't listen to you right now. Pastor Sam's calling. He doesn't put you on hold. You get priority for being a pastor. All of you and all of us have equal access to God. That we can speak to him freely, whatever's on our heart or mind, even if it's confusing, even if it's frustrating. And you don't need any magical spiritual language. You don't have to have it all together. You don't even know what to say. The Bible's so clear about this. It says even if you don't know what to say, just go like, ah! And God's like, oh yeah, I understand. Because sometimes that's all you got. You're like, God, it's just, ah, right now. He says, I got it. I hear you. All can approach God in confidence. Can you imagine if this is true? Hey, come on. We say Christian things all the time, right? But what if this is actually true? What if if it is actually true that you can go into God's presence and you can confidently go, not, not, oh, no, I'm a messed up sinner. Through Jesus, I can go confidently. And I can freely talk to him. God, I'm so pissed off at this like life. Like, oh, this thing's so frustrating. I could probably don't beep beep it, but you know, like, God knows you're beep beeping in your heart. Beep beep beep. I'm so mad. What if I could? What if I could actually freely go to God and tell him, like, I'm really worried about my marriage. I'm really worried about my kids. I'm really worried about myself. God, I feel like I'm never going to conquer this thing. Or what, what if we had the freedom? And the God of the universe actually listened to us and cared. The Bible says he does. But for some of us, it's hard to imagine that. God is so big and powerful and majestic and righteous and beyond. It reminds me of this casual photo that I saw uh, many years ago, Uh, a photo of President Obama uh, with his daughters. And it wasn't... uh, you know, sometimes they do these staged ones where the kids are with them and they look happy and nice and stuff. But it was one where it was taken inside uh, of their living room in a, a casual setting. The kids were like in, I think they were in PJs and he was like in casual clothes and stuff. Now here he is, the most powerful man in the world at the time. But not to them. He's just daddy. He's the most powerful man who could without congressional approval, launch nuclear weapons and destroy the world. If that's how he so chooses. The most powerful person, the most respected person, the most respected office on the planet. But not to them, he's just dad. They don't need to get dressed up to see him. They don't need to get Secret Service approval. They don't need to get clearance. They just open his door and they walk in. so too with you and God. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's the God of the universe. And yes, he's just dad to you. And you can talk to him anytime you want. All you got to do is just open the door and walk in. 
and he's there for you at any time and at all times. Let's finish with this last verse, 313. I ask you, therefore, Paul's talking to his church in Ephesus, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. So Paul says, like, don't worry that I'm in prison because of, like, he got, why did he get in prison? He really is suffering for them. He got in prison for sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And he's like, hey, Gentiles, don't feel bad. I am in prison because of you, but, but don't worry about it because I'm in prison for Jesus, right? It's not the Romans in prison. It's Jesus. It's not you that caused it. I'm here with God. Paul's, and, and Paul knows that, well, I don't know if he knows, but Paul is actually being used for a, a greater way than, than maybe even he imagined. This particular Roman imprisonment where he finds himself writing this letter, he, he produces the books of Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. So in this particular imprisonment, I got in prison for sharing gospel, he says, but it'll probably work out okay. Yeah, probably. Four books of the Bible. Like his, the, the, the suffering become Christianity's blessing. And the New Testament has 27 books. Four of them are written during this imprisonment time. He says, hey, this suffering's all good. It's going to be for glory. In the same way, we have a strategic place in the service of God's eternal plan. Knowing this, knowing that I have a strategic place, not just Paul, because he was just a guy too. I'm just a guy. You're just a gal. Guys and gals were just a regular person. And you have a strategic place in the service of God's eternal plan. When we know this, it'll help us not lose heart during times of suffering because there are going to be times of suffering. But if I know that God has like this eternal plan and I get to be a strategic piece, he says, I need you right there right now. Maybe go to prison. Okay, go to prison. I need you in prison right now. I need you to be working at, uh, I don't know, wherever you guys work, at Irvine Company right now. You're in a strategic place. I need you to be working in the school district right now for sure. I need you to be here. God is placing us in strategic places And so if you suffer in those places, you can say, oh, God, I know I'm in the right place. This is a God place. Wherever you find yourself, it's a Jesus place, right? And it makes the suffering bearable. Some of Paul's greatest contributions to Christianity and God's kingdom came during his most difficult times in his life. Let that sit in for a second. Because if it's good enough for Paul and the apostle in the Bible, it's probably good enough for me. If, If his greatest contributions came during his greatest suffering, during his greatest difficulty, greatest angst in life, and that was where he was able to affect Christianity the, the most, where he was in the right strategic place at the right time, then maybe it's true with me. Maybe it's true with you. There's a guy named Jim Elliott, many of you know, uh, if you're over 35, you know. A guy named Jim, Jim Elliott, he was a missionary uh, who was killed in 1956. Went down uh, to share the gospel, and uh, before he got to tell him about Jesus, he said, hi, hi, hi. They met him once, met him twice, and before he got to share the gospel, they killed him. This uh, tribe, uh, they speared him to death. And in the midst of his wife Elizabeth's loss and grief, she decided to go continue to share the gospel with these people who killed her husband. So she went back, shared the gospel with them. And not long after that, this entire tribe and, and, and multiple tribes around them came to Christ. In the middle of her suffering, God did an incredible work 
And these folks not only came to Christ, but became her new family. So much so that her children call them grandfather. The very man who killed her husband, her child, calls grandpa. Isn't that wild? Through suffering, a togetherness could take place. A strategic position was available if she was available. But you know what she could have done? She could have just gone back to America and been like, they killed my husband. Forget this, God. How dare you? We gave our lives. Literally, he gave his life. He came out here to show the gospel and they killed him. Forget you, God. Might deconstruct my faith. But she didn't. She said, God, this is your moment. Allow God to redeem your times of suffering as well. To bring blessing from the depths of struggle and sorrow. Allow God to move in you as he places you in a strategic place. But you're not doing it alone. Remember, you're part of a together. You're part of the new nerd herd, like the, the, the better nerd herd, the Jesus herd. No matter where you find yourself spiritually this morning, know that, that you're in the right place right now. Right where you're sitting right now is a Jesus place. Open the door to God and walk in. Tell them anything. Grasp that you're loved and, and you're, you belong here with him. Join together in our together calling to be sharers of the good news, to preach of the boundless grace of Christ Jesus. Would you take a moment to let God's word settle in you just for a minute? Like don't really don't really say anything back, but if you just take a a moment to be contemplative and say, but how how can your word settle on me right now? And then we're gonna worship together.